The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you got the wrong game. A teacher, I told you. Now, what does the teacher say, huh? Study, study, study. Or bunk, bunk, bad kid. Not funny. It's a foley. Mary. You're not supposed to be here. I know. What's the matter? Something go wrong? No. Okay, then. Just don't stand there in the doorway. Come on in. Listen to him. You listen, Mary. I did. Tell them, Jim. 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 Listen to me. Tell them, Jim. Listen to me. Oh, yelling in a classroom. Look at him, a very bad citizen. This isn't a game. There never was a game. everyone. It's Thursday, November 12th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Does the world of public discourse on the issues seem like a bunch of blah, blah, blah to you? If so, you've come to the right place in more ways than one. How does this strike you for a theme of conversation? The failure of success and the success of failure. Just two of the counterintuitive themes that I'll be taking a look at in the second half of today's show. Robert, what have you got on the front burner for us today? I've put together a little piece I call The Spawn of the Comprachicos. Yikes, it sounds like something that's swimming upstream. I'm not too sure. (laughs) Well, just before you get started, allow me to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, and that's J-U-S-T-R-I-G-H-T-M-E-D-I-A dot org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz from Monticello, Maine, where the broadcast station is, or visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can also make a donation to support this show. Robert, back to you. Well, I I think a lot of people, Bob, have seen recently a video of an incident which occurred just this past week on the campus of Yale University in the United States, which should command everyone's attention. But it's only one example of countless examples of just how uneducated, shallow, lowbrow, and desperately mentally disturbed many university students are these days. Mentally disturbed, my. Mentally disturbed. 
Oh, quite. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm quite sure that they are. Um, it began with a letter to the students of Yale by the Intercultural Affairs Committee. Uh, the very fact that such a committee exists on any campus these days is a discussion in and, in and of itself, but I'll leave that for now. The purpose of the letter was to inform the student body as to what is politically acceptable and unacceptable when dressing up for Halloween parties. Now, it read in part, I quote, Halloween is a time when the normal thoughtfulness and sensitivity of most Yale students can sometimes be forgotten and some poor decisions can be made, including wearing feathered headdresses, turbans, wearing war paint, or modifying skin tone or wearing blackface or red face. These same issues and examples of cultural appropriation and or misrepresentation are increasingly surfacing with representations of Asians and Latinos. Yale is a community that values free expression as well as inclusivity. And while students, undergraduates, and graduate definitely have a right to express themselves, we would hope that people would actively avoid these circumstances that threaten our sense of community or disrespects, alienates, or ridicules segments of our population based on race, nationality, religious belief, or gender expression, unquote. So that's, Robert, um, did, did, did you say Yale? Yale, yes. Not the University of Western Ontario? It <laughs> <laughs> could be any university <laughs> in North America, Bob. That was the very issue we dealt with just as the school year started this year. At yeah, time. instead of Halloween costumes, I think that they were talking about the um, homecoming costumes or something like that, commencement, whatever they call yes. it. Yes. Oh, and Halloween, too. Everything oh, and all Halloween packaged was in that whole policy, yeah. yeah. I see. Well, you know, there's nothing new here in, the, in that letter. In typical social justice warrior Orwellian double talk, the committee reminds the students of how they value freedom of expression, except when it comes to making decisions for themselves, apparently. I'd like to think that uh, to many students, this kind of typical race-obsessed missive from the typical PC elite would go straight to the spam directory. But... Anyway, it didn't. What followed that communication was a response from sociology professor Nicholas Christakis and his wife, Professor Erica Christakis, who um, lectures in early childhood education. Erica Christakis wrote an email to her residential college students, which took a stance contradictory to the fear-mongering and dictatorial letter from the Intercultural Affairs Committee. She wrote... Quote, Nicholas and I have heard from a number of students who were frustrated by the mass email sent to the student body about appropriate Halloween wear. I don't wish to trivialize genuine concerns about cultural and personal representation and other challenges to our lived experience in a plural community. I know that many decent people have proposed guidelines on Halloween costumes from a spirit of avoiding hurt or offense. I laud these goals, in theory as much as us do. But in practice, I wonder if we should reflect more transparently as a community on the consequences of an institutional, which is to say bureaucratic and administrative, exercise of implied control over college students. As a former preschool teacher, for example, it's hard for me to give credence to a claim that there is something objectionably appropriate about a blonde-haired child's wanting to be Mulan for a day. Pretend play is the foundation of most cognitive tasks, and it seems to me that we want to be in the business of encouraging the exercise of imagination, not constraining it. I suppose we should or could agree that there is a difference between fantasizing about an individual character versus appropriating a culture, wholesale, the latter of which 
could be seen as tacky, offensive, jejun, hurtful. Take your pick. But then I wonder, what is the statute of limitations on dreaming or dressing as Tiana the Frog Princess if you aren't a black girl from New Orleans? Is there no room anymore for a child or young person to be a little bit obnoxious, a little bit inappropriate or provocative, or yes, offensive? American universities were once a safe space, not only for maturation, but also for a certain regressive or even transgressive experience. Don't know what that word means. Increasingly, <laughs> it seems uh, they have become a place of censure and prohibition, and the censure and prohibition come from above, not from yourselves. Are we all okay with this transfer of power? Have we lost faith in young people's capacity, in your capacity, to exercise self-censure through social norming, and also in your capacity to ignore or reject things that trouble you? Unquote. So that's the letter from Professor Erica Christakis. And on the face of it, Professor Christakis' viewpoint seems much more reasonable than that of the Intercultural Affairs Committee. It's unfortunate that she deemed it necessary to write the letter at all, considering she herself says that she lauds the goals of the committee in theory. Right. There right. is a major problem with credibility. Right there. Anything she says after that, she'll contradict. To agree with something in theory is to agree with something in practice. If you see the practice does not work, it undermines the theory, and so the theory should be dismissed. You simply can't believe in something in theory when you know that it doesn't work in practice. You're being deceitful to yourself. And yes, even a little bit jejun. <laughs> I can't believe I said that word twice in one week. Just as the committee contradicts itself by saying it respects freedom of expression while trying to stifle it, in the very next sentence, Mrs. Christakis contradicts herself by saying she lauds such goals as being inoffensive and then suggests that there's nothing objectionable by doing exactly what the committee says not to do. In response to Ms. Christakis' email, a large crowd of Yale students are calling for the resignation of her and her husband. They've stalked them in public, and recently a video shows a mob of about 60 students, that, by my count, um, around them. And it was posted to YouTube showing a disgusting exchange between Professor Christakis and one of the stalkers. Prior to the exchange, Professor Christakis could be seen having a somewhat polite, if not elevated, discussion with others in the crowd who occasionally clicked their fingers rather than clapped their hands in a show of approval, as if they were attending a David Bowie performance. You remember that one about blue jeans? <laughs> well, it, also, it, it also reminds me of the Beatniks of 1950. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Who used to snap their fingers instead of, uh, instead of clapping for a performance, you know? Yeah, it's bizarre how these, all these fingers. mindless automatons <laughs> just behave, you know, when they're in a mob. Yeah, it's a collective. Uh, the pack, yeah. The whole scene was eerily reminiscent of the movie uh, The Village of the Damned. Remember that? with The, the children with the glowing eyes yep. and the white hair <laughs> apparently I do, rem I do remember that yeah <laughs> apparently in the middle of this discussion one young lady and i use that term loosely disagreed with something professor the professor said and tore into him let's have a listen to first her response and then follow it up by the apparently offending words of the professor exception is because other people have rights too, not just Walk, walk away. Walk away. He doesn't deserve to be listened to. He doesn't deserve to be listened to. I do not. Be quiet. 
for all standing students. You understand that? As your position as master, it is your job to create a place of comfort and home for the students that live in Silliman. You have not done that. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Then, then why the did you accept the position? Because Who I have the a hired you. I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a master, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. Do you understand that? It's about creating a home here. You are not doing that. You're supposed You're to be our advocate. You should be at the event last night when you hear a Franco say that she didn't know how to create a safe space for her freshman instillment. How do you explain that? These freshmen coming here, they think this is what Yale is? Do you hear that? They're going to leave. They're going to transfer because you are a poor steward of the community. You should not sleep at night. We're out. We're out. You are disgusting. I have said I am sorry for causing you pain. That is different. About that is different. That is different, in fact. That's different than the statement that I'm sorry for what I said. There's a big difference between the two guys. Do you the fundamentally fact, stand behind what I you stand say? behind free speech. Yes, I do. Well, then that sorry doesn't offensive. mean anything. Even when it's offensive, especially when it's offensive. Even when it denigrates me. Even when it denigrates you, even though I don't agree with the content of the speech. I have the same objections to the speech that you do. The same ones. But it does But I defend the right of people to speak their minds. So when the IAC So who gets to decide what's offensive? Who gets to decide, guys? What if everybody says, I am hurt? Does that mean everyone else has to stop speaking? But that's not what was happening. Hold on. No, no, no. So I agree with the content of your speech. I am as against racism as you are. I am as against social inequality as you are. I have spent my life addressing these issues. Even some of the students in my classes can go through this. But that is different than the freedom of speech. The right to defend people to say whatever they want, including you. Okay. Including your right to write Wait, what you John, want and speak to me, him? which yeah, I will also defend. And one more thing, when I was at other institutions, I have defended people with your views against tremendous opposition. People with your views that the administration tried to ferret out and expel. I will defend you to say whatever you want, anywhere you want. You understand? Except to disrupt a classroom where someone is trying to teach students, which is the Yale policy, by the way. So we're coming up with an but I don't, now. Why yeah, the one exception is because other people have rights too, not just walk, walk away. Walk away. Can you imagine that kind of a response to a university professor saying that people have a right to free speech and that the students should respect the rights of others? Unbelievable. It was, out Unbelievable. It was outrageous, Robert, uh, you know, when I first heard it. You know, when they put it online, the first one I heard was just that first clip. I didn't hear the entire context. Mm -hmm. And then when I heard how that young lady reacted, I said, my goodness, what's going on there? What could he have possibly said to her? And then you hear what he actually said, because they were splitting those, those uh, clips online the way they were putting them up. Yes. A and then talk about an overreaction. Something else is going on there. Oh, her language in response is inexcusable. As an adult, let alone a senior, she is a senior, by the way, on a major oh university campus. 
Her body language and tone are intimidating. And at one point where she drops her backpack and gets into his face, I thought she was going to strike him. I really did. I thought this was going to explode. And it was quite apparent from the disrespect given the faculty member by the students that they've gone their entire lives in contempt for authority, harboring some kind of hatred for difference of opinion and contrary to their own assertions of inclusiveness and freedom of expression, like from that uh, committee letter, zero tolerance for anyone who would dare disagree with their mob mind. You know, this kind of behavior can find its roots as far back as the 1964 student riots at the University of California at Berkeley. Many commentators at the time were hard-pressed to understand, let alone disagree, with a handful of organizers of the protests there. But Ayn Rand wrote a remarkable and comprehensive piece on the root causes for the riots and the behavior of those unruly students. These same causes can precisely explain the letter from the Yale Intercultural Affairs Committee, the tepid and apologetic response by faculty, and the violence we just heard from that mob of students. So, nothing. so, so are, you saying, are you saying nothing's changed on campuses in, in the States since the 60s? Nothing has changed except perhaps the percentage of students affected by the mental corruption of today's education system. I think it's just a matter of degree and compliance. That's what's changed. But the root causes, they haven't changed at all. It's always philosophy, Bob, always ideas. Rand's series of articles in The Objectivist in 1970 laid out the impairment of young minds willing to learn by the progressive education practices which were a direct result of the dominant education philosopher at the time, John Dewey. The article as a whole was titled The Comprachicos. Now, in explaining what the term Comprachico meant, Rand quoted from her source for it, which was Victor Hugo in his novel The Man Who Laughs. According to Hugo, Comprachicos is a compound of the Spanish word that means child buyers. These child buyers take um, the children at a young age, physically deform them by various hideous means, and parade them at fairs for the amusement of patrons. As Hugo wrote, quote, To succeed in producing a freak, one must get hold of him early. A dwarf must be started when he is small. Hence, an art. There were educators. They took a man and turned him into a miscarriage. They took a face and made a muzzle. They stunted growth. They mangled features. Imagine an inverted orthopedics. Where God had put a straight glance, this art put a squint. Where God had put harmony, they put deformity. Where God had put perfection, they brought back a botched attempt. And in the eyes of connoisseurs, it is the botched that were perfect. The practice of degrading man leads one to the practice of deforming him. Deformity completes the task of political suppression, unquote. And that, that was Victor Hugo. Rand appropriated, for want of a better word, this term and used it <laughs> to describe the distorting effects on the minds of children in what she called at the time progressive educators. Now, I say at the time because it was around the decade of the 70s that some educators had yet to adopt in its entirety the progressive methods of John Dewey, while today the entire public school system in the United States and Canada, subscribe to Dewey's ideas. This is from Rand. The production of monsters, helpless, twisted monsters whose normal development has been stunted, goes on all around us. But the modern ears of the Comprachicos are smarter and subtler than their predecessors. They do not hide. 
They practice their trade in the open. They do not buy children. The children are delivered to them. They do not use sulfur or iron. They achieve their goal without ever laying a finger on their little victims. The ancient Comprachicos hid the operation, but displayed the results. Their heirs have reversed the process. The operation is open, and the results are invisible. In the past, this horrible surgery left traces on a child's face. In both cases, the, the child is not aware of the mutilation he has suffered. But today's Comprachicos do not use narcotic powders. They take a child before he is fully aware of reality and never let him develop that awareness. Where nature had put a normal brain, they put mental retardation. To make you unconscious for life by means of your own brain, nothing can be more ingenious. This is the ingenuity practiced by most today's most of today's educators. They are comprachicos of the mind. They do not place a child into a vase to adjust his body to its contours. They place him into a progressive nursery school to adjust him to society. The progressive nurseries pleaded for a delay of the process of education, asserting that cognitive training is premature for a young child and conditioned his mind to an anti-cognitive method of functioning. The grade and high schools reinforced the condition. Struggling helplessly with random snatches of knowledge, the student learned to associate a sense of dread, resentment, and self-doubt with the process of learning. College completes the job, declaring explicitly, and to a receptive audience, that there is nothing to learn, that reality is unknowable, certainty is unattainable, the mind is an instrument of self-deception, and the sole function of reason is to find conclusive proof of its own impotence. Unquote. You know, when I first read Rand's The Comprachicos, Bob, I identified completely with the methods she described. I was halfway through grade school when she wrote that article in 1970. I was in a Catholic system um, in a province, which was always just a few years behind the times. I witnessed the move from a structured and disciplined environment to one of chaos, play, and disorder. I remember our desks prior to the move were like, uh, you know, in rows, looking forward to the front of the classroom where the teacher was for instruction, and then going around 1970, um, to a system where, okay, kids, put all your put all your desks together. We're going to have a bull session now and strike up a committee to discuss something. No instruction, just kids teaching kids, having fun, playing, you know, disorder. I saw the hope of a hierarchically arranged curriculum dissolve into a non-integrated concretes. I resisted the influence of Dewey personally and the comprachicos of the minds, as did many, it was often the misfits and the troublemakers who were spared, but those who were quick to conform to their methods were lost. Rand believed that since man is volitional, as I do, there's always hope and a mechanism to restrain or retrain rather the mind to overcome the destructive interference by today's teachers. But one can never get the t- lost time back, especially that critical time in a child's development, you know, at the age of five, six, seven, eight. And retraining yeah, yourself. To, even hmm? even if you can get the time back, it's not the same experience. It's not the same. No. Um, no. Y- you just won't. You won't recapture that developmental stage. No, that's why I, um, I think she mentioned the word retarded. Their development is <clears throat> retarded, intentionally, by intent. You know, and after that, after that happens to you, retraining yourself to think past the age of seven, 
is exceedingly difficult and requires dedication. Before the age of seven, a normal child is eager to learn and to be shown how to learn. If he's delivered into the hands of the Comprachicos of the mind during those crucial years, it's a struggle to come out with your mind intact. Many don't make it. The mob surrounding Professor Christakis didn't make it. They're mentally stunted. More from Rand here. Quote, the student activists are the Comprachicos' most successful products. They went obediently along every step of the way, never challenging the basic premise or premises inculcated in the progressive nursery schools. They act in packs, with the will of the pack as their only guide. The scramble for power among the pack's leaders and among different packs does not make them question their premises. They are incapable of questioning anything. So they cling to the belief that mankind can be united into a happy, harmonious, unanimous pack by force. Brute physical force is to them a natural form of action. Philosophically, it's clear that when men abandon reason, physical force becomes their only means of dealing with one another and of settling disagreement. The activists are the living demonstration of this principle. The activists claim that they have no way of attracting attention to their demands and of getting what they want except by force, by violent demonstrations, obstruction and destruction, is a pure throwback to the throwback to the progressive nursery school, where a tantrum was the only thing required to achieve their wishes. Their hysterical screaming still carries a touch of pouting astonishment at a world that does not respond to an absolute such as I want it. The three-year-old, whim-worshipping, whim-worshipper becomes the twenty-year-old thug. And that's what Ayn Rand had to say. And her words back in 1970 about the 1964 riots at Berkeley apply today to that mob that surrounded Professor Christakis at the University of Yale. Nothing has changed except the degree uh, of, of students, the number of students who, who have, have had their minds stulted, stunted, retarded. Um, they suffer from a mental illness, uh, as you properly called it, Bob, early when we were talking, a programming error. <laughs> you know, rather, right. than, rather than a, a physical damage, as in a car accident or something from birth, this is a mind that was perfect at birth, who, yeah. or, or watched through improper programming and handling at a at the very instructive ages in the early development um was was misprogrammed and garbage in garbage out garbage in garbage out and we're witnessing now i mean that senior student at yale is a direct result of the teaching of of the teachers at yale and prior to that in high school and prior to that in grade school and prior to that in nursery school that is the result you would expect from the teaching methods that they use so I don't know. The whole education, Bob, to me, it makes you just want to scream. E is the fifth letter of the alphabet. Yes, can I help you? I have a problem. Mr. Campbell, I need to go real bad. First day? Yes. I'll take care of her. Thank you. You know, kindergarten is like the ocean. You don't want to turn your back on it. Oh, they're okay. Don't worry. Everything is under control. No. Monsters. 
Aren't you gonna break it up? No, two more days of this, and you'll quit. No, don't stop this. Human beings are the smartest species on Earth by far, but we are dumber than toads when it comes to understanding bubbles. We never see them. People warn against them. We never believe them. And it's because it's a high. When, when your stocks are going up for no reason, you're making money sitting, and your stocks are going up, your house is going up for no good reason. You'll be able to borrow, get a mortgage for 3% instead of 6 to 7%. It's a high. Nobody wants it to end, so we go into denial. I spent a whole chapter in my book, a whole chapter just looking at every major bubble in history. They always go exponential, which this is long done. They always burst twice as fast as they go exponential, and people get slaughtered every time. They just don't see it. N almost no economist is warning about this. Politicians, definitely not. Stockbrokers, never. You can't listen to the experts here. You have to understand bubbles. If it looks like a bubble, quacks like a bubble, it's a bubble. I go and lay this bubble we we've seen from 2009 into 2014, early 2015, over the past great bubble, the tech bubble, it lays almost exactly. It looks like a bubble, therefore it is. People say this time it's different. It is always different, but they always crash. It doesn't matter what causes the bubble. As David said earlier, nothing can go up exponential forever without dying of its own extremes. So understand bubbles and realize, just look at this. If it looks like a bubble, it's a bubble. Protect yourself because they crash twice as fast as they build. Fear runs faster than greed is my motto. That was Harry Dent, <laughs> someone who I had never heard of before a few days ago, when a listener to the show sent me a link to his near one-hour promo video that he's using to sell his book about how to protect yourself in the upcoming economic crisis. You know, bubbles and bursting and all that, Robert. Mm -hmm. And the person who sent me uh, this link wrote, I've been thinking this for years. The crap's going to hit the fan soon probably going to happen within the next year or so. It's just due, he wrote. Well, strangely, the fan being clogged up with all that crap has been due almost ever since I became aware of politics several years ago, Robert. Oh, I've been listening to doom yeah. and gloom stories about yeah. the economy forever. I have a shelf full of books on this theme sitting on the shelves back of my office, stretching from the 1960s to the present. All of them warn of the same kinds of crises. And here's the weird part. A lot of them are right in the context of their time, but not always in the context of their timing or time predictions of impending crisis. And usually way off base in their political predictions, which I'm afraid is what continues here. But this promotional video captured my attention for a few reasons. But I had this great reluctance to even watch the video, and it made me examine my own motives, because here I am, a guy who talks capitalism and freedom and entrepreneurial spirit, and then I get all suspicious about some guy trying to sell me something, right? <laughs> the irony. <laughs> yes. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Normally I listen to this, but, you know, it's, it turns me off in a way. And, uh, and then on top of that, 
obstacle to my listening to it. There was, of course, uh, the, usual, the usual hyperbole you get. Tracy McCullough, who hosted the interview, described the video as, uh, quote, this urgent broadcast detailing a looming financial crisis that will bring an end to America's free market system. This crisis, engineered by our own government's destruction of capitalism, will directly impact every single person in ways that they never saw coming. And then she says it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor. Once this crisis hits, your life will change. Nobody is safe. And we have specific steps, of course, that you can take to protect your investments and the economic sundown in America. Okay? The usual. Yeah, the um, usual. <laughs> but, but my interest was piqued by the fact that in the promo piece was David Stockman, who served as Republican U.S. Representative from the state of Michigan from 1977 to 81, and was Director of the Office of Management and Budget in 81 to 85 under President Ronald Reagan. And he wrote the book, The Great Deformation, The Corruption of Capitalism in America, which is a New York Times bestseller. And I, I did a quick look up in Wikipedia, and, you know, Stockman became one of the most controversial uh, Office of Management and Budget Directors ever, which lasted until his resignation in August 85. And he's committed to the doctrine of supply-side economics, and he assisted the passage of the Reagan budget, which Stockman hoped would be a serious curtailment to the welfare state. Harry Dent, himself, who I hadn't heard of, is the son of Harry S. Dent Sr., described in Wikipedia as an American political strategist, considered one of the architects of the Republican Southern strategy. So there's certainly a common political connection between the participants of this promotional piece. And Dent himself is described as founder of H.S. Dent Investment Management, based out of Tampa, Florida. He advises on market strategy, you know, the usual and writes an economic newsletter. And of course, he, he earned a little fame because in the 80s he forecast that the Japanese economy, then the darling of the world, would soon enter a slowdown that would last more than a decade. In the early 90s, he predicted that the DJIA would reach 10,000. Both of these predictions were met with such much skepticism, and yet both eventually came to pass. And I noticed that in looking at his material, he mostly uses demographics to make his economic predictions. And so, of course, there's a lot of controversy around him, whether he's legitimate or whether he's a reliable kind of person, etc., etc. Again, the usual. And a whole list of books. But both David and Harry have warned against the dangers of massive government expansion and its ceaseless intrusion and intervention into the free market economy that's destroying our great nation, as they put it. And apparently Stock, Stockman was keynote speaker at Dent's recent, get this, Robert, Irrational Economic Summit. <laughs> what? That's, <laughs> That's the what they name call, of it? Yeah, because they were picking on irrational economics. I thought that was great. Oh. <laughs> it sort of captures the tone of the times. Yeah. You know? So that's basically their presentation that I was confronted with and to which I have a few things to respond, both positively and perhaps more critically. We have long argued on this show that it is a mistake to think of capitalism as a profit system of personal gain, when in fact capitalism as an economic system is more properly called a profit and loss system, with the loss component being as important as the profit component. I suppose you could argue that there is an economic motive for avoiding loss, you know, <laughs> but I would still call that the profit motive. Um, you know, whereas when I refer to the loss component of capitalism, I'm referring to the actual freedom to fail and suffer a loss, which always sounds so cold and heartless, aren't I mean? <laughs> but, but in general, 
dance videos seem to capture the principle in a way I didn't quite anticipate. But first, a brief comment on what I shall, what I call the failure of success, which will be contrasted with the success of failure in just a few moments. Now, when I say the failure of success, that's my own term, another Metzism, Robert. Oh, yeah. Uh, the failure of success is the economic consequence of a political intervention, monopoly, or subsidization in whatever forms those might take. The businesses and enterprises supported by governments appear successful in the narrow economic sense of the term might even be so, especially when applied to the individual business or industry itself. Almost any government enterprise is an example of a successful failure. Hydro One in Ontario serves as a good example. Another one might be the taxi monopolies that we were looking at a few weeks back and their opposition to a successful success, Uber, moving in on their politically monopolized economic territory. State monopoly health care and education are other examples, just like one of those ones that you just dealt with. Private companies that received government bailouts or subsidies, as in the automotive sector and certainly in the financial and banking sector, which is the focus of dance theories. These are all great examples of what I would call the failure of success. And the welfare state, not welfare itself, is yet another example of failure success. So I suppose in a nutshell what I'm saying here is that all of these successful outside the free market enterprises and businesses are really failures in the real world. And that makes them unsustainable as they begin to outnumber and outweigh the real successes and relatively free market businesses and workers who must support all of it, either through their taxes or through lost opportunities. But for the general welfare and for economic security, these state-run centralized planning schemes are a failure. Now, as I mentioned that uh, now I mentioned that Harry Dent's video seemed to capture the, uh, that principle of capitalism as a profit and loss system in a way I didn't quite anticipate, and that was to examine a loss on a greater scale, not on simply the personal, but on the scale of the supply of money, currency itself. There was also a counterintuitive economic argument being made that seemed to make sense to me, and that's this, how inflating the currency leads to deflation. Stockman fully supported this theory. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it, Robert? Mm -hmm. I want to briefly begin by taking a look at their theory, and then on the other side, when we return in about six or seven minutes, I'll give my reaction and a few thoughts on my own theories on the subject. So, Harry, with all this free money being printed, many of the economists that I hear from say that the expectation is for inflation. But that is not, in fact, what you all are talking about now, is it? And what is the difference? You know, that is so common sense. But if you study history, crystal clear, almost no exceptions. Every great debt and financial asset bubble in history has been followed by deflation. And it doesn't mean governments don't try to either print money or, or, or invest in infrastructures or lower interest rates to prevent it. And that would tend to be inflationary in normal times. But here's what happens when these debt bubbles burst. We said before, $62 trillion in debt in the United States. 40 trillion of that is private debt, which can deleverage as much as 50%, which is what, how much it deleveraged in the Great Depression. $20 trillion disappears. I talked about $184 trillion worldwide in financial assets, loans, stocks, bonds. Half of that or more, $80, $90, $100 trillion disappears. I, I call it magic. And printing money and, and debt is magic. It is a financial drug. It is getting something for nothing. And when it deleverages, now you see it, now you don't. $100 trillion in financial debt around the world, $20 trillion in private debt in the U.S. disappears. That's less money. This is real money. 
Debt is money. Financial assets and your retirement plan or your house. This is real money to people that they're going to use in the future. That disappears. You got less money chasing the same goods, which is the classic definition of deflation. David, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I agree with that. The point to remember is that massive money printing by central banks on a worldwide basis is inherently deflationary. In the 90s, everyday people were flipping tech stocks. In the 2000s, with all this low interest rates, they were flipping homes and condos. China today, the most affluent people there are buying not just condos, empty condos at the highest prices in history. Everyday people are going to be killed as well as the gamblers win this bubble burst. It sounds like we're heading towards sort of an inevitable evolution of finances, a revolution of sorts that will clean the slate and allow the natural course of things to just happen again. Yeah, I, I keep calling it a great reset. Yeah. And that's what we need. And every great reset has been followed by the greatest booms in history. Once this bubble bursts, will any good come from it? A lot of good will come from it. Our economy needs a great reset. Income inequality needs to go back and favor the middle class, as it did after the Great Depression. Stocks need to be affordable and bonds at, at reasonable interest rates for the next generation to invest in the future. Housing needs to be more affordable, especially in major cities, if this next generation is going to have a good standard of living. This reset will happen from the markets, from the collapse of all this stimulus, and not by political policies. So we've been saying there's a lot of good things. If you look at the Great Depression, that was the worst downturn in U.S. history, but it deleveraged massive amounts of debt at the private level and brought reality and reinvestment and, 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 and a strong work ethic for the next generation coming out of that. Um, stocks, the greatest bull market in all of stock market history was 1933 up until this recent boom. Decades and decades of boom. The greatest economic boom and standard of living increase in U.S. history and world history came in that time period. Clearing the decks is exactly what the free market capitalist system does. Everybody espouses it, but nobody wants the darn thing. Nobody, the companies don't want the disciplines. They all want monopolies or near monopolies. Politicians want to control everything and set interest rates and set growth rates and make it like a machine. The economy does well, the golden goose, I call it, precisely because we have this play of opposites, booms, which, which accelerate um, the adoption of new technologies and growth. But bust, which facilitate innovation. The greatest innovation comes in downturns, in inflationary periods, or in deflationary periods. Feds and the government don't want deflation. We had the great, the whole computer, jet engines, and zillions of things came after the Great Depression because of that challenge. And personal computers, internet, cell phones, smartphones, all of this came in the 70s inflation. They're killing the golden goose by not letting these play of opposites, boom and bust, inflation, deflation, innovation, creative destruction. This is what makes us rich, but it causes some pain. What do you have to say about that, David? I agree. Uh, in the long run, we have to get off this debt addiction. We need to get back to sound finance, both in government and households. But be getting between here and there is going to cause enormous pain for millions of households who have been herded 
into risky investments, junk bond funds, stock market funds, uh, high-flying biotech stocks, and on and on, because they were told it's the only place to be. If you put your money in a CD, you get no return. If you put your money in a safe bond, you get almost no return. Now, when the big reset, as Harry calls it, happens and the stock market drops by large magnitudes, 50%, more, those people who were herded into these risky investments late in life, because remember, we have the, the baby boom, uh, you know, heading towards the retirement homes, <laughs> uh, are going to be badly hurt at a time that they can't recover. And it will be a massive injustice that is being done by Washington and the Fed uh, to this current generation of middle-class Americans. That will produce, in my view, a political reaction, a political revolt that will begin to say, what's wrong here? Who believed that printing money out of thin air can make a society wealthy, wealthier? Why did we do that? Who believed that we can actually create jobs and new uh, economic output on Main Street simply by having the Fed press a button and pre uh, create another billion dollars? I think the public is going to be asking all these questions soon, and that will be part of the therapy that Harry's talking about. Not only financially, but the real therapy is political. David Stockman's expectation that there will be a political revolt, I think, is both naive and seems to me a complete denial of experience and history, going all the way back to the Roman Empire, <clears throat> which is why we've been making a point of Rome's history on a few of our past broadcasts. You know, there he is saying, like, you know, this whole, you know, our next depression that's coming is going to cause this uh, great political therapy. Everyone will re-examine their politics and, and lo and behold, the great political world will come. And he says, you know, who believes that printing money out of thin air would make society wealthier? Well, I would say almost everybody on the left believes that, which is most people. Didn't we just hear Harry Dent himself say that inflationary periods are a great time for innovation? just like deflationary periods. You can always cite examples of in innovation during any economic cycle or circumstance. Inflationary periods are a great time for excessive risk-taking, much of which is wasted and not innovative. Governments themselves don't like deflation because governments are in debt, and it's easier to pay debts off with inflated dollars. Borrow a dollar that's worth a dollar in 2001, pay back that dollar in 2020 with a dollar that's worth 50% of the 2001 dollar. So <laughs> between you and me, Robert, I see a lot of incentive for inflation practices to continue, <laughs> unless there is a political change. But that won't come about because of arguments about inflation. If a sound economy were really a motive for voters. Do you, do you think the Canadians would have elected Justin Trudeau as the country's <laughs> prime minister, or that Ontarians would have elected Kathleen Wynne, or that Americans would have elected Obama? All liberals to the core. All the leftist voters, all they've asked for after the last round of crises is, hey, give us more of the same, <laughs> right? They do not recognize that inflation is a hidden form of taxation because no one ever teaches them that or explains it to them. Nor do they see government intervention as an evil in and of itself. Because for most, co most voters, it's not the intervention. It's the kind of government intervention that matters. That's really the difference between the left and right. What kind of intervention? Mm -hmm. You know, 
most can follow the money, but few can follow the ideologies. In dollar terms, which is both the subject and object of anything involving a discussion of inflation, we know that inflation destroys the value of savings in dollar terms, while deflation increases the value of saved dollars. But here's the weird part. A dollar is always a dollar. It's always worth a dollar. So how can, you, how, would it, how can it increase in value? How can that be measured? Only in one way, and that's through the relativity of time as measured against previous purchasing power, usually the basics, food, shelter, basic necessities. Uh, but even the dollar of the past is in itself also relative when it comes to innovative products, like computers, cell phones, the stuff that he was talking about, that Dent was talking about, which were very expensive in terms of those past dollars, but very inexpensive in, t in terms of today's dollars. Robert, if you tried to buy a cell phone like the ones we're using today back in the 70s or 80s, what do you think that would cost? Trillions. Well, <laughs> yeah, the point even, is moot. <laughs> yeah, but even in terms of their dollars. So obviously inflation did not affect that particular uh, um, good, right, <laughs> in that sense. So if inflation is described as more dollars chasing fewer goods, which I think is a factual consequence of inflation, but is not its critical economic definition, because if it were, then there'd have to be at least two causes of inflation, right? So let's use that definition, more dollars chasing fewer goods. Well, that would mean that printing more money or expanding credit and debt relative to the goods and services available, you'd end up with more dollars chasing fewer goods, and you'd have inflation. Or... You could have a collapse of production. You know, an extreme example, say a war. Say your factories were bombed and all of a sudden there was a shortage of whatever or everything. In this case, even though the money supply might have remained unchanged, relative to the goods and services available to the same money supply, there's now still more dollars chasing fewer goods. And so you still have what you might call inflation. But in strict economic terms, I wouldn't describe the latter as inflation where a supply of some good or service has disappeared. But I would describe the inflation uh, of printing more money relative to the same currency. That I would call inflation. By the way, when we say the printing of more money, don't take that too literally anymore because the expansion of credit can happen strictly digitally, you know, in the accounts of banks and financial institutions. But we still say printing more money because that's how money is represented. You know, I also find Obama's concept of quantitative easing, that term, you know, quantity referring to the supply of money, which is also debt. It's kind of humorous. You ever think about it, Robert? Quantitative easing, the printing less of, printing more. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I've always thought that such uh, terms were pulling yourself up by one's own bootstraps. It's, it's nonsensical. Yes, completely ridiculous. So um, let us remember that we're talking about economists and investors and that type of, of, of a mindset, okay? Clearing the debt is a bit different from clearing inflation. Dent's argument would seem, again, to favor both inflation and deflation, boom and bust as a desirable thing, as I mentioned before. And given the audio bite we just heard, I think these guys would be totally opposed to a sound money that was of a fixed quantity. At least that's what's implied by what they said. And another implied message is you don't get any gain without any pain, which might be true in a given circumstance, but I don't agree as a principle if that's being presented as some kind of ideal. We can avoid the unnecessary pain by employing knowledge and honesty, meaning sticking with reality and reason and abandoning, quote, irrational economics. <laughs> so how do we recognize 
the doom and gloom when we see it. You know, I've dealt with this before on the show, Robert. I don't think it's that simple. I think we've already been through several crises, but people always seem to think the worst is always ahead. In that future that never comes when in some ways a particular identified crisis may already have been here and gone. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I'm saying? We're already we? suffering the effects of that. We're already seeing the unemployment. People are still waiting for, well, where's the big, where's the other shoe going to drop? You know, people in what we call the third world certainly live in a state of permanent crisis by our standards. And as we've noted before, even during the Great Depression in the U.S. and Canada, a relative over 80% of the population was still employed. So, you know, I'm, I'm hearing of this Gordian knot of economic myths and fallacies and truths all tangled into these single arguments, not, not, which does not negate them or make them false. But I think the bottom line in politics is this. Free economies and the political structure to support them do not fix themselves in the sense that an economy may reset. Because, again, the future never arrives. You know, in my hometown of London, Ontario, our local politicians are telling us that they're about to spend a billion dollars on public transit with the argument that, quote, we're building the city of the future, not the past, end quote. And here's my problem. I only live in the present. (laughs) And the future never arrives. And that's just like socialism. Socialism is a perceived means to some end, but in the end... The end and means always become the same thing, and their end is never reached, and both are destructive and undesirable. Under capitalism, there are no promises of some end goal for the future. That's to be determined by the people who live then. Capitalism is, in and of itself, both a means and an end, since, as I like to best describe it, it's not a system at all. It's the economic condition that arises when individuals are free to act rationally and through consent. That is both the ends and the means. And for us, Robert, that means it's the end of our show for this inflationary round. (laughs) (laughs) So join, join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. You know, it occurs to me, you could solve all your problems by obtaining more money. (laughs) Yes, it occurs to me too. Hang on a moment. Here, take some. Pay me back when you can. Wow, you got a lot of money in there. Here. No, I can't. Don't you need money? Well, yeah, but... This is money I'm not using. Take some. Really? I mean, are you sure? I see no large upcoming expenditures, unless they develop an affordable technology to fuse my skeleton with adamantium like Wolverine. Are they working on that? I sincerely hope so. Okay, well, thank you. Oh, God, no, I can't. Sheldon, honey, I don't want things to be weird between us. Won't it also be weird if I have to say hello to you every morning on my way to work and you're living in a refrigerator box and washing your hair with rainwater? I'll pay you back as soon as I can. Of course you will. It's impossible to pay me back sooner than you can. Assuming you subscribe to a linear understanding of time and causality. I'm regretting this already. We hope you enjoyed our show today. If you'd like to hear more great conversations, 
Here's a sample, about which I'll say more in a couple of minutes. Because the fact is, when human beings are massacred for drawing cartoons, and Muslims, the only thing they do in response is defend their prophet and not civilization, not in, in, in the place that they live, there's a real problem there. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the jihadist terror, you know, the jihadists, I'm talking about the average Muslims. So Pamela Geller decided to um, respond in an aggressive way, but in an appropriate way, to a massacre of cartoonists. Thirteen human beings lost their lives, were butchered by jihadists over drawing Muhammad cartoons. And her response was to draw more Mahama cartoons. And there were a lot more. Over 300 entries were uh, sent in. And uh, I decided to enter. I've been drawing Muhammad for years. Uh, I drew him, uh, you know, after the first time I drew him was after the Danish cartoons. Uh, the Danish cartoons came out. And then after every massacre, after every atrocity having to do with Charlie Hebdo and whatnot, because Charlie Hebdo got there, uh, all this is firebombed in 2011. Right. I remember drawing a cartoon in, uh, you know, in honor of Charlie Hebdo. And uh, so I, I entered it, and uh, I decided to try to do something a little different than I normally have done. I've drawn Muhammad so many different iterations, and I decided uh, just to draw. And I was, uh, as I was drawing him, I said, how about if I have him threatening me directly, threatening me, the artist, who's actually drawing him? And I thought that was an interesting take. It and, is, uh, and um, it, if our listeners uh, want to go to our website, what we'll do, Bosch, unlike a lot of the other visual media out there, we will put up your winning drawing as the iconic uh, image for this show, so that people can see. I really what, appreciate it. Yeah, so people can see exactly what uh, what causes. Exactly, a lot because of you know what? I, I just have to add. I'm sorry, by not showing my cartoon uh, while they discuss it, the media across the board, including Fox News, which is the alleged most powerful name in news. Uh -huh. That's how they refer themselves as. Not only are they, you know, disobeying to Islamic norms, but they're also making it seem as if it's too obscene to show, potentially end endangering me further. That was Bosch Faustin, winner of the Draw Muhammad cartoon contest that precipitated what became known as the Garland, Texas shootings earlier this year. You can hear our entire hour-long June 4th conversation with Bosch by visiting www.justrightmedia.org. Look for show number 403. Controversial? You bet. Here's what he had to say about his immediate reaction to the shootings as the event occurred. It, you expect this kind of moment of truth to hit if you do the kind of work I do. If you tell the truth about Islam, if you tell the truth about Jihad, if you tell the truth, if you draw Muhammad, there's all in the back of your head, no matter what, that someone might come and do what they do and put you down. And uh, it finally came, you know, to head. It's the first time I've ever been in an event, and I think even Robert Spencer expressed that it was the first time in his dozen years of going to events that this something like this happened. So it was uh, a strange thing, but also just a, a reminder: we are at war, and these two guys fancy themselves as soldiers in that war, and so just it was uh, scary, but also just uh, you know, it was fitting. I mean, this is what they do. This is what we do. We have events about free speech and drawing and civilization, and they butcher. And uh, when I found out, I'm I'm in a back room. I'm with, I'm with one of this one of the security guards. When I found out that they were put down, I pumped my fist. I was ecstatic because <laughs> evil was put down. The only ones who died were the old, those looking to kill. I even tweeted not long after that. I said they came to kill us and die for it. Justice. 
and the papers put that up as their title, you know, trying to smear me. And I, I felt that I, I smear me. I'm proud of I'm proud of that tweet. Yes. Well, they also managed to, to give the cause a greater publicity. I mean, you couldn't have bought more publicity yeah. than having an event like Absolutely that. Right. So, so in that sense, the event was a backfire for them, pardon the pun. But, uh, Absolutely right. 